What's going on, everyone? Welcome to Corner Table Talk. I'm your host, Brad Johnson. Here we are exploring subjects related to food plus drink plus culture. As always, with questions, comments about our show, we love your questions and your comments. You can reach me at rad at hostandbeamhospitality.com. I recently watched a brief clip of an interview with the late John Kennedy Jr. The interviewer was awkwardly pressing John on the pressure and expectations given his name and family background. I first met John when he showed up at my dad's restaurant on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. The seller in the early 80s, I had gone around the neighborhood distributing flyers. We were trying to entice some of our local slash white customers to try us our clientele at that time was almost exclusively black, although the racial makeup of the neighborhood was very integrated. Early one evening, as I was setting up the dining room for dinner, I noticed the top of someone's head visible just over one of the burgundy leather booths. I walked over to the only diner in the room to say hello, and looking up from his New York Times was John Kennedy Jr. I asked how he had found out about us, and he said, quote, I got a flyer. And that started what became a nice friendship for he and I. So back to the interview, John, as smooth and unassuming as ever, said he was grateful for the good fortune and embraced the challenges of expectations as part of his unique journey, not allowing even a hint that he was in any way burdened. Needless to say, though he was graceful and unflappable, answering this probing journalist, the expectations others had for John were enormous. So I was reminded of this clip in researching my guest today. You would be doing yourself a disservice to begin a conversation about, or in this case with Caroline Randall Williams, without first reading up on her and her family tree. She is the daughter of best-selling author Alice Randall, with whom she co-wrote the award-winning Soul Food Love and Avon Williams III, a well-known former diplomat who served as acting principal deputy counsel of the Department of the Army. Caroline's grandfather was a prominent civil rights lawyer and former Tennessee State Senator Avon Williams Jr., and she is the great-granddaughter of scholar Arna W. Bontemps, the African-American poet, novelist, and noted member of the Harlem Renaissance. These are the roots from which Caroline Randall emerges, but it goes deeper. According to Caroline, Edmund Pettus, U.S. Senator of Alabama, senior officer of the Confederate States Army and Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan, was her great-grandfather. She states, quote, the Black people I come from were owned and raped by the white people I come from, end quote. Caroline is an author, multi-genre writer, educator, and performance artist, and also a restaurateur. Based in Nashville, Tennessee, where she is a writer in residence at Vanderbilt University, and as if she did not have enough to do, most recently the host of the Viola Davis-produced Black Food History series on the Discovery Channel, Hungry for Answers. There is so much to her story. I'm really happy she's joined us today, Caroline. Welcome to Corner Table Talk. I'm so happy to be here, and I'm grateful and overcome by that introduction, so thank you. <laughs> I'm sure you'll gather yourself just fine. You're used to that. But So we kick things off here, Caroline, with what we call our short order questions, so let me fire a few of these at you. You good? I'm ready. All right, let's go. 
What music is in heavy rotation on your playlist lately? What you listening to? This is going to sound weird, but some fife and drum music from a gentleman called Otha Turner. He's a black Mississippian who made this wild fife and drum music that sounds almost like it's from, I don't know, 19th, 18th century Ireland, but it's made by black folks in Mississippi and the Mississippi Delta. I've been listening to that a lot. It's good writing music for me. It makes me feel ready to like get back to work. And right now this country needs people that have the energy to get back to work because things are wild. So Otha Turner, Fife and Drum. I am making music. that note. That's a new one for me, but thank you. <laughs> I love that. How about your morning beverage? What's the first thing that you consume in the morning? Oh, coffee. <laughs> coffee with, uh, I drink it black these days with a little bit of stevia and some cinnamon and some cayenne pepper and some ginger and some turmeric powder. Damn. I, yeah, I do a whole thing. <laughs> do a whole thing. <laughs> yeah, we put a little cinnamon and my wife and I in ours, but the rest of that is a different brew, but it works for you. All right, so favorite Nashville restaurant. Not trying to get you in trouble with anyone here, but what place has your attention mostly these days? I'll say the kitchens and dining rooms of my friends and family on the other side of COVID. That's been my new, the gift of this strange world we're living in is I think we've changed how we gather for the better in some private ways or gone back to something good, added something new. That would be my answer to that question in this moment. No, I like that. That's a good answer. I recently had Sam Sifton on the show who talked about from New York Times creating Sunday dinner as a ritual now at his place. And I think we're all kind of feeling that, right? Yeah. And the luxury of gathering at home, because I think before Nashville had this boom of restaurants and I was like, you know, I, I went in into business in one and I, I love to eat out. And then 2020 happened and all I wanted was to be able to gather people at my table. And so getting to go back to sitting down with people in my house or going to other people's homes, that welcome table is just, it hits different on the other side of a pandemic. No, no question about it. All right. So your diet, vegan, vegetarian, flexitarian, other? <laughs> other. <laughs> yeah, I'll try just about anything once. I, like most many Black people, am fairly lactose intolerant, but I'll still eat ice cream. I'll still, I'll still I'm flexible, okay. but I, I eat protein and vegetables a lot. You're a good dinner guest then. You're not turning your nose up at anything you're mm -mm. served. I, I like that. So you mentioned ice cream. Is there a favorite ice cream spot in Nashville? Oh, listen, one of my best friends in the whole world is a woman called Lokalani Alabanza. And she is an ice cream, a black woman, genius ice cream maker extraordinaire. She's got a company called Saturated Ice Cream, and it is my favorite ice cream to eat. She has a sun butter stracciatella, which is a sun butter ice cream with flecks of dark chocolate in it. And it is my favorite thing, except for her other one that she made for me, which is her magnolia flavored ice cream, because we were trying to figure out what spring tasted like. And she came up with that brilliant stroke of genius. And her cookbook also, Shameless Plug, is coming out, I think, at the end of this year or the beginning of next year. She got an ice cream cookbook. Yeah. We happened to have Lokalani on the show a while ago, and she sent us oh, some ice good. cream. And I have to tell you, from the description alone, the titles alone, I was like, how can this not taste amazing? And it outdid my expectation. Yep. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, Lokalani Alabanza saturated ice cream. That's my joke. Yeah. I'm with you on that. All right. Last one of these. You're hosting an intimate dinner party. What's on the menu and who passed your presence at that table? I'm hosting an intimate dinner party and I'm either going to roast a big piece of salmon or roast a chicken. 
because the bang for buck of bringing that platter out, people always think, ooh, you really did it. It's actually so simple and delicious. And probably potatoes and asparagus because I'm a simple girl. My great-grandmother had a beautiful garden. I really like clean things prepared, simple and easy, simple ingredients. I think who would be there, I would like to have Shakespeare and Zora Neale Hurston. I would probably like to have, oh my gosh, I'm thinking I've just gotten to encounter for the first time Ambassador Shabazz and her father would be somebody I'd like to have at the table. (laughs) I'd like to have, I think, Bobby Kennedy Mm -hmm. at the table because I have a lot of questions about what we're supposed to do with America right now that I'd like to put to some people who were alive and doing serious work at a hinge moment. And I would have both of my grandfathers because <laughs> I really wish I got to know them as adults because I think they're both very wise men. And I would have, I'm waffling. I'm like Frederick Douglass or Dr. Du Bois. <laughs> I need more advice. <laughs> but, Party, you can have them both. So. Okay, can have them both and Jim Baldwin Ooh, and Jim Baldwin. Okay. All right. Yeah, that's a table to be at. And <laughs> you touched on the political. I want to come back to that a little while later in the program and allude to a great piece, an op-ed piece you wrote in the New York Times back in 2017 when we all were wondering what the hell was happening in D.C. But I'll come back to that. So I want to jump in. And before I do, you, you mentioned... And I saw this was new to me that you had a little uh, experience as a restaurateur. Tell me about that. So, well, the old Woolworths department store in downtown Nashville, it did not really survive desegregation. And it was the site of the Nashville sit-ins, which Dr. King used to model as a model for all the subsequent, most of the subsequent sit-ins of the civil rights movement as he was leading it in the 60s, because it was so peaceful and so effective at changing laws and infrastructure in the Nashville dining scene. And my grandfather, Avon Williams Jr., was one of the lawyers that worked with his then boss, Z. Alexander Luby, to bail all the students from Fisk out of prison when they or out of jail once they got arrested for at those sit-ins. Mm-hmm. So when the project was announced that this big hospitality company was going to uh, go in restoring that building and turning it back into a restaurant that celebrated National Intersections history and Southern and Black cuisine, I said, oh my gosh, how do I get involved? I had the opportunity to be an investor in that restaurant. And my mother and I actually were able to set up an all-Black author cookbook store at the front of the restaurant as well. I think in some ways the restaurant was ahead of its time. And in a city that you go downtown in Nashville now, and it's a lot of the white side of country music is what's celebrated, although that's evolving. And we have the National Museum of African-American Music now, and people are a little bit more ready for the conversation. But I think a big mid-high dollar restaurant that said, you need to look at our hard history. I don't know that Nashville was totally ready for it right when we opened, but the Woolworths building in that project continues to evolve. So it was an interesting business learning experience for me. I was really honored and continue to be honored to have been a part of that project. And they put a soul food love recipe on the menu too, my sweet potato kale and black eyed pea soup. So Mm. that was really exciting Mm. as well. Go there for that. It reminds me, and you said it might've been a little bit ahead of its time because of course, Michelle Bailey and the Gray have since done something not completely dissimilar by taking over that Greyhound bus station in Savannah, a town that might not Mm -hmm. have been ready for it when you did the Woolworth project. Yeah, I think that's right. And I also think 
you know, Nashville is an interesting one because it is such, in some ways, it's a global hub of a serious entertainment industry, but it's also probably in being that probably the whitest one. Like Nashville is a really white city. Tennessee is, I think, the second whitest state in the South after Kentucky. I could be getting that wrong, but you know, so I think there's also something of navigating of audience that we just have to be real about. Like, I think we would have pulled it off in maybe New Orleans or Atlanta in a different way. Yeah, there's a hard history in Nashville of black business, black owned businesses getting closed down in a way that's blackness being repressed in the South is one thing, but black prosperity having had a hold and then getting destroyed is another. And that happened in Nashville. It's like a pretty stark shift from the late 60s, early 70s when they built the highway that cut Black Nashville off from the rest of the city and all sorts of crazy stuff happens. Yeah, that's an unfortunate tale that's told in quite a few places. L.A., mm-hmm. Miami, the 10, the, where Marcus Samuelson put the rooster in Overtown, same story, that yep. community got cut off. I'm sure it's probably a subject you'll, you'll venture into with your show. So let, let's talk about this great show of yours. Congratulations, Hungry for Answers is what it's called. And I want to kick off uh, the conversation with a topic that you teased in the trailer, but it was also a subject of your first episode. And it, it hits close to home for me in a couple of ways, as I have a feeling that a lot of these subjects you cover will also. But you set out to answer the question, who gets to cook black food? The story of Nashville hot chicken. Kim Prince of the legendary Prince family is a friend of mine and she happened to open up. I know you came to Post and Beam when you and your mom released Soul Food Love, but since that time, she opened up Hot Built Chicken directly across the parking lot from us, Debbie Allen. And she struggled there, Caroline. Actually, she's gotten a little bit oppressed lately because other concepts have lines out the door. Here's the, one of the offspring of the originators of this food movement. And she's having trouble attracting the same level of interest. The second thing for me was I actually wrote an article back in 2012 when Goldman and I opened Post and Beam. We were trying a different concept. The racial makeup of South LA is a historically black neighborhood of multiple neighborhoods. And we were trying something a little different. We had a vegetable and herb garden. We weren't a straight ahead soul food restaurant. We had other things on the menu and we got some pushback. We were doing composed plates, not overstuffed plates. We didn't put salt shakers on the table. Some of the black community that was accustomed to seeing black folks, me as a restaurateur, Govan as a black chef in their community serving a certain kind of food, there was a little pushback to that. And it was a big ship to turn. But you're taking this on in a really interesting way with your show. So I'm curious, what do you feel was missing from the conversation that attracted you to this as the kind of focus of what you're doing with Hungry for Answers? So many things to unpack with all you've just said. No, I love it. I love it. The first thing I'll say is part of what's missing is our access to our own history. And when I think about, if I work backward from your observation about the idea of a composed plate or something that's not traditionally soul food seeming alien, perhaps, I'm thinking about Edna Lewis opening Cafe Nicholas in New York in the early middle of the 20th century and serving Truman Capote and serving Hemingway, like all these people coming in and her and having being, she did soul food, but she also, she lived in an intersection. And this is a woman from rural Virginia who grew up on a black farm with her black family. Her instinct was to follow her creative interests and bring intersections to the table. That's something we've been doing 
for decades and centuries. To attach that to my question of who gets to cook black food, every elegant food way from Maryland and Virginia on down throughout the entire United States, black tables and white tables, was composed by black hands. <laughs> I think about Martha Washington's cookbook and her fine peanut soup, or Thomas Jefferson and his beautiful plates and macaroni and cheese. Those were all black chefs, black women in the kitchen, black men in the kitchen, black creativity. So I think owning that our food is elegant, it's composed, it's plated, it's international, it's intersectional. That's been our practice for the entire time we've been in this country. It's been reduced through erasure, through a lack of access to our own history, through the social justice and health crisis of food deserts, obesity, and fast food. When you're told that this is your food and it's like a replica of soul food, but that you got through a drive through at Popeye's, then you start to think what we eat is collard greens and sweet potatoes and macaroni and cheese and, and nothing else, when really the scope of our food is so big. Who gets to cook black food? <laughs> to me, like at least east of the Mississippi, all food in America is black food. <laughs> and then also in California, right? So that's part of the question. Who claimed black food originally? Which food did black people then claim for themselves? And then who gave people the right to then just decide that they have discovered what we've been making as some sort of novelty that they're now bringing to the masses. It's a question I grapple with because I'm glad that the world knows about hot chicken now, but it's still heartbreaking and a symptom of a larger American illness that the way that the world figured out what hot chicken was because white men got their hands on it and started selling it as theirs. I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. I don't have an answer to how to deal with it. I've talked in circles, but you asked me the question of what part of the story did I feel like I needed to talk about. I feel like I needed to give context and history for Black people, like for Black food to Black people to celebrate and allow us to expand even more what we get to claim. Because I think sometimes we can get alienated from one another thinking that's not our food, but yes, it is. <laughs> also, I wanted to, because of the positions of my life of like where I've been educated, certain ways that I talk, certain contexts that my family brings or whatever, I am in a position of privilege where I do wind up in front of a lot of white people with power who feel obligated to listen to me. And so to me, one thing that I get to do is ask the hard questions that we often ask in private and in suffering. I get to ask about truth in front of power. <laughs> and I think that that's an important obligation that I have. Yeah. Let me stay on that point just for a moment, if you don't mind. And you mentioned Edna Lewis, who we all revere. I, I tried to get her to LA when we were opening up Georgia in the early 90s. We had lots of conversations, but ultimately she didn't make it. But she was cooking predominantly for white folks at Cafe Nicholson. You mentioned Truma Capote. He's quoted as just loving her chocolate souffle. Someone else who did it years later in the theater district, Alberta Wright, who owned Jezebel. I don't know if you ever made it to Jezebel in New York, who took our food and elevated it and put it around fantastic art and crystal chandeliers. Unfortunately, Caroline, what was different at that time, and this is what brings me to this point, there were no black food writers of any prominence. Now I know people like Tony Tipton Martin, perhaps were at the LA times in the nineties, but the predominant food writer at that time was a white male. Maybe in New York, you had Mimi Sheridan, you had a few other people, but there were no black food writers. So the interpretation of our food was seen through a different lens. You have the unique opportunity 
as this generation has produced people like you and more, and fortunately we're still in the restaurant business and food conversation is getting louder. You have a chance now to really shape that narrative in a different way. It brought me to that point and you recognizing that as well. I think you're right on the money. Thank you so much. I hadn't contemplated it from that perspective and I feel even more excited and more of a responsibility. Now there's a wild breadth of brilliant black food writers to dig deep and tell our truth, which is exciting. Yeah, that is exciting. It really is. So just stepping off of that for a moment, I am curious, you have Viola Davis is producing your show and getting a show on the air. It's no easy feat, even with a Caroline Randall Williams and a Viola Davis attached. So how was that process and did it help having her? Did it open some doors and get you heard? <laughs> Oh my God. She is the door. She's the door opener. She is a door. She is what's on the other side. She's amazing. The story is, I don't know if it's long. It's circuitous and wonderful. I finished college in 2010 and I had signed on to be a core member with Teach for America in the Mississippi Delta. I moved to Mississippi the same summer that Viola and Octavia and all of them were down there filming The Help. And I was living in Greenwood, Mississippi and the street I lived on was one of the main streets where they were filming. Greenwood is a small town. So we, everyone sees everyone. So I was seeing like the actors, the director, like everywhere in town all the time. And then the bookstore in town, the local bookstore, which is owned by some really right-minded, wonderful people. The store is called Turn Row Books. And they hosted a party for the new Teach for America people who live there and the cast of The Help. Because they were like, oh, the new progress in town. <laughs> Everybody come for one big party. So I met Viola and her husband, uh, Julius Tenen, at that party, and they were like, what are you doing here? Because there weren't that many Black core members. Like Teach for America, the Mississippi core is like whiter than most of the other cores because Black people don't want to move to Mississippi. They're like, my family got out. I'm not going back. It's one of the only Black TFA members at that party. They were like, what are you doing here, girl? I'm here to teach. And Julius was like, this is the Lord's work. Good for you. And he gave me an email. He said, if you need help, here's this email address. And I came away with that going, write that down, Caroline. I think I, I took a picture of it. I wrote it down. I saved it. And then I mom and I, the beginnings of Soul Food Love happened while I was doing Teach for America because I was cooking for myself. I was teaching. My students were like 98, 99% black and all similar percentage of them living at or below the poverty line. I was eating stuff that they kept saying looked like white people food, but that I knew I'd been taught to eat from my black great grandmother who you know, grew up farming with her family in rural Georgia. And I was like, no, we bake sweet potatoes for lunch. We roast fish in a tinfoil. This is what we do this. So I, that's where mom and I started thinking about a cookbook during that lived experience. One thing leads to another. We are able to sell soul food love. And as we're coming to press, the publishers, do you know any famous people who might want to blurb this thing? <laughs> and I said, oh, my God, <laughs> I am going to reach out to Viola Davis. <laughs> she said yes. And she blurbed the cookbook. That was miraculous. And then I reached out to try a couple of different angles of, by a couple of different production companies to see about a food show back in 2015 when the book came out for one reason and or another those didn't pan out. I filmed some things, tried some things. They made me wear a color. They made me wear pearls and pastel, things like this. I know everyone's listening here. I wear black mostly. Sometimes I'll throw a rogue color in there, but I wear black. I tried a couple of shows and they didn't work. And I said, okay, you're a writer, Caroline. You'll always write. You're a teacher. You'll always teach. If you're lucky enough to get on TV, 
I wanted to be a movie star when I was little. We'll figure it out. Then Viola opened a production company. I think I was one of her first calls for when they were starting to think about their reality stuff. She said, do you want to try something? And I said, oh my gosh, yes. So we tried something else with the Food Network, did not buy it. This was like 2018 this happened. And then I really was like, okay, you're not for TV, Caroline. We're not going to figure this out. You're too weird. You ask too many hard questions. (laughs) Then finally, 2020, the year of the harrowing year of hard things, but like truth being dragged into the light was good for us truth tellers. I did some truth telling that got me a little bit more national recognition and Food Network reached back out to Viola's team and to my production company, B17, who collaborated with them. They said, you want to try one more show? And I was jaded and tired by this time. I picked up the phone. I was like, I kind of want to try one more show, but only if I can cuss and wear black. (laughs) I I was like, Look, like we don't have any more time for our bit. If you don't let me tell the truth, you got to let me tell the truth. I'm not abbreviating. We're not getting the abridged version. No censoring, no radio edit. Let me do the director's cut. They were like, all right, cool. So they let us conceive of the show the way it needs to be told. Telling the truth, wearing black, cussing when you need to, drinking when you want to because that's that's the welcome table these days. Viola and her patience, vision, and credibility utterly anchored that at every step of me feeling confident about hanging in. And I think from the network perspective of giving a chance to this young woman who's, I don't have some huge profile footprint on the internet. So it's an act of faith on their part. Good for Viola for her ability to spot talent. And uh, you describe Mississippi, I don't think, any artist has ever summed it up better in two words than Nita Simone, Mississippi, goddamn. So there we have it. Well, let's talk a little bit about Soul Food Love. Healthy Recipes Inspired by 100 Years was published and co-written with you and your mom in 2015. As I mentioned, you had a book signing it posted to me. I do remember meeting you then. And I talked to your mom a few times last year. She's been incredible and wonderful to me. She's told me about some of the incredible dinner parties that you guys host. And I'd like to read an excerpt from the intro to Soul Food Love. A Tale of Five Kitchens is what it was titled and get some thoughts from you on the other side, if you don't mind. So, quote, this cookbook tells the story of five kitchens and three generations of women who came to weighing more than 200 pounds and a fourth generation that absolutely refused to ever weigh 200 pounds. It's the story of 100 years of eating in one black American family, the kitchen has historically been a fraught place for many Black Americans. It has been a place of servitude and scarcity, sometimes violence, as well as a place of solace, shelter, creativity, commerce, and communion. In our family and in many Southern families, the abundant kitchen has become an antidote for what pains and afflicts us. Somewhere along the way, abundance became excess, then excess became illness, end quote. So, Caroline, I love the way that you transitioned from the celebration of our cuisine to what consuming it in excess has created for some Black folks from a health perspective, to what is referred to as, in your book, Baby Girl's Kitchen. So can you talk about this a little bit? Yeah, it's probably one of my favorite subjects to talk about, Baby Girl's Kitchen, and it's my kitchen. I think that one of the big things that as mom and I were researching and As we got on the road with book tour, and as I've been talking about this book now for seven years, which what a miracle to write something and then get to talk about it. 
continuously for years like this. People tell their stories and they share the things that resonate. One of the things that people continue to tell us resonates is when we make the distinction between celebration food and everyday food, because they're soul food in both. I think circling back to what I said earlier about the crisis of fast food and food deserts and erasure of food history is that we think that the unhealthy parts are all of what we used to eat and are all of what we can or should claim. We forget that the act of eating well, eating healthily, eating cleanly, like just the beans and rice, right? Like greens from the garden, the baked fish and tinfoil, the handful of berries that you ate when you were working like a dog in the field. Those things are also our food inheritance and our food legacy and they're precious. Part of it was about uniting that and making eating so-called cleanly feel still black because it is. <laughs> I think that was a really important part of the kitchen. And then also the question of figuring out how to make the welcome table and the celebration table feel precious by saying this fried chicken, I prepared this for you with love and we get it when the pastor comes over and at holidays, right? Making like re-elevating the things and acknowledging their preciousness instead of making them some sort of indispensable ritual. Because the other part of the baby girl kitchen ethos is that soul food is food that serves the soul and the body of the person that you're preparing it for. People that you love, you want them to be well. So a kitchen that offers food that keeps the people that you love, that's a soul food kitchen to me. That is such an important agenda. I have so many family members who I'm sure I would have had longer in my life had they eaten differently, if they'd made different choices. I think this idea that we serve our culture by eating foods that take our, our relatives out sooner, we've got to rethink that. I think a lot of us are. People talk about, or my mother at least talks about veganism as the sixth pillar of hip hop. There are so many people that are transitioning their food because we want to be well and eat well to live well. And I'm excited about being a part of that conversation. Good for you. And you're a good voice to add to that mix. African-Americans are the fastest growing segment of people converting to vegan diets. So that's also encouraging. I alluded to JFK Jr. in the opening and your prominent background. Your mom went to Harvard, you went to Harvard, Oxford, and the accomplishments of your family magna cum laude for you at Harvard, your thesis. That's a lot to enter <laughs> the next phase of life with, which you have done well professionally. And I know the JFK analogy is not a perfect one, Carolyn, but I'm curious when you were made aware of your family's accomplishments and whether you ever had felt any burden by what was expected of you or what you felt like you might have to live up to given that. So your first question, I was raised very much as soon as you could understand that somebody was important, I understood that my grandfather was important. I was raised going to my grandparents' house every Sunday after church. My grandfather lived till I was six, so I have distinct, vivid memories of sitting with him. He had ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. Our communication was complicated because I couldn't totally understand him as a child because of the degeneration of his speech. But people were always at that house and the gravitas of him and then the stories around him and what he did and what his work was always very much made clear to me. His wife, my grandmother, her dad was Arna Bonton. On the days we weren't at my grandparents' house, we were at my great-grandmother's house, and I was sitting in Arna Bonton's study. My great-grandmother left basically untouched from the day that he died, like his papers and pencils still on the table. 
his notes and his edits, his typewriter, his letters from and to Langston Hughes in the file cabinet, all this stuff is wild. So there are some ways in which I grew up in a living civil rights, black literature museum. (laughs) I was definitely aware of it from as soon as a child could be made aware of what any of those things are abstractly or in their own life. To me, I think it's interesting. I have a lot of right-minded white friends who are still struggling in this moment to come to terms with things like acknowledging of privilege, right? We use this term privilege a lot these days. I've spent most of my life trying to acknowledge and grapple with privilege, right? Because there's parts I experience different kinds of racism, but in some ways more in the day-to-day than some of my students who lived in all Black communities in Mississippi. They lived with more of the hard truths of what it means to live under the foot of systemic oppression, but they don't see enough white people to have people be racist at them every day. (laughs) Whereas I, from microaggressions to being called the N-word at school, being the only Black kid in a lot of white spaces, I experienced a lot of racism every day, every month, every year of my life growing up. But I also had this radical privilege. I have more important grandparents than most of my white friends. People that made history and are in the books, I do not resent and I've never felt. I think that all people who have parents that have high expectations, whether those parents be first-generation immigrants who work hard labor jobs to get their kids into school or kids like me, if you have families with high expectations and you think that those expectations are honorable, I'm grateful to have the opportunity to carry on a legacy. The goal is to have a measurable growth in your life. So if you start with nothing and you land owning your own car and being able to pay rent on time every month for the whole rest of your life in an apartment, wherever, that is radical growth that is celebrated. I started on a plane that just means I still have to show that same amount of growth. So in order to honor the expectations set before me. So I just have to. I can't resent that I started with extra stuff and so I need to generate more. That's JFK right there. With great privilege comes great responsibility. I think if you don't accept that, then you don't deserve your privileges, in my opinion. We all start with a certain canvas, but it is up to us to do the painting. And I think that touches on your point. As I also mentioned, you had some interesting, sad, tragic blending of the family with Edmund Pettus. Last year, Oxford American, there was a a food issue and you wrote a fantastic poem in that. I wanted to read the paragraph leading into it that was written by Van R. Newkirk. But then if you wouldn't mind, Carolyn, I'd like to ask you to recite the poem. I'd be honored and I would like to, for your listeners... Plug, go find this article. It's called The Great Land Robbery. It was published in The Atlantic. And Van Newkirk really does a superlative job of outlining some of the whys and hows of Black land ownership and the decimation of the numbers of Black farmers in this country in ways that blew my mind and continue to blow my mind. So read the whole article, but I didn't think I could include the poem in a publication without situating it within the context of his work and the truths that it's trying to tell further contextualize it, farm to table became a catchy buzz phrase for restaurants in the last year. When you hear the poem, you'll understand the connection, audience. Let me read the paragraph by Van Arnuker that precedes Caroline's poem. Quote, what happened to Black landowners in the South, and particularly the Delta, is distinct and was propelled not only by economic change, but also by white racism and local white power. A war waged by deed of title has dispossessed 98% of Black 
agricultural landowners in America. They have lost 12 million acres over the past century. But even that statement falsely consigns the losses to long ago history. In fact, the losses mostly occurred within living memory from the 1950s onward. Today, except for a handful of farmers like the Scots who have been able to keep or get back some land, Black people in this most productive corner of the Deep South own almost nothing of the bounty under their feet. End quote. Caroline? What are you asking us to want? What are you expecting our bodies will remember here? Let me put it another way. You say farm to. I say field hand. You say fresh produce. I say strange fruit. You say back to the basics, back to the land. I say return unto us our stolen acres. Give us our land back again. How shall we revisit a stolen thing? What harvest invites us home and our hands' blood still soaked to every now decorative plow? Our pastures with a pen stroke turned to someone else's flock? I say no. I say we have left your, not yours, farms for seats at tables. Our ability to sustain ourselves is our sustenance. Your sustainables come always and too often at our expense. And priority is as priority does. So call me a resource, sugar. Put me on your list of things you hope endure. Let that just marinate for a second. The line, you say fresh produce, I say strange fruit. That. I just, the simple words, but Caroline, I go back and reread that so many times, of course, from the Billie Holiday song originally, the lyrics were written, I think even way before that, like back in the thirties, but relating to the lynching of black Americans and compared to the fruit on trees. But where did, where the hell did you pull this from? I just was thinking, cause I live in a world, this is, you can see behind me, I'm sitting in front of a small selection of my grandmother's Jones 2000 cookbook collection. And there's Italian fine dining, there's French country cuisine, there's all sorts of elegant stuff in here. I've had the privilege of meeting the legendary Alice Waters who farmed a table. She really dignified that notion with her restaurant and her food practices. But when you're talking to like black kids living in the Delta, in Georgia, in Alabama, and they're looking around these industrial agriculture enterprises that are run and owned by white people, that are the reason their family was dragged in chains across the Atlantic Ocean and then utterly disenfranchised the second they deigned to want to get paid, saying, let's just go see what it's like to go work on a farm and dig up a sweet potato, and then wouldn't it be exciting to go eat that? And I remember I was even just talking about the idea of it, and a student said to me, "Miss Williams, you want us to be slaves? Wow. Like, I don't like getting my hands dirty for food. It means something different when your family were products too. That's when I say, call me a resource because the white world is very concerned with depleting resources, right? And very concerned with husbanding the things, the natural resources that exist and making sure we care for them better than we have in the past. There are 
white conservationists from South Carolina to Georgia to Florida to Alabama to North Carolina, all up and down the coast everywhere that are really concerned with wetlands and utterly unconcerned with meals for black children at schools. That concern set, that's where it came from. But just trying to reorient some perspective here. I've sat in on so many talks where people are like, food waste, I'm so concerned. I'm like, I am too, but I'm more concerned about the fact that if I give birth in this country, I'm three times more likely to die than a white woman with the same education and financial circumstances as I am. I really do. I want to try and use the whole stock of broccoli. I'm gonna, and I'm gonna recycle too, but can we be concerned with black life as well? I was trying to write a poem that dignified, that acknowledged that both sets of concerns are there, but one of them is wildly underconsidered by the larger population. The elegance with which you walked that line and dealt with that subject, I think was beautiful. So really wonderful. Thank you for that reading. And of course, it's a very serious subject when you're talking about the mortality of black women giving birth, particularly. But I'm going to segue just over to, a, and I don't know that you're going to, I don't expect that you will have the answer to this, but I'm curious as to your perspective. The hottest restaurant in Miami right now is a place called Carbone. It's an Italian restaurant. They're a group of restaurateurs out of New York. And literally, it's, you can't get a table there. And if you read the menu, Caroline, I'm sure you've eaten in plenty of Italian places. It reads just like an old school red sauce spot. There's not a whole lot of the new stuff. It's pretty straight ahead. And I think about that and I think about what Marcus is doing with Red Rooster in Overtown. And you look at his menu and maybe to your point, we've imposed certain parameters upon ourselves that maybe shouldn't be there at all. So in fairness, maybe Marcus's, the variety on his menu, he's certainly entitled to do, but for whatever reason, and this is my question to you, our food, if we were to do our version of what a red sauce joint is and put it in the same way next to Carbone, I don't think that the perception of its success or the success of it is going to measure the success of Carbone. The perception of our food is unhealthy, bad for you. Whereas Italian food in excess is also bad for you. And I connect that to the romance of Italy versus the saga of the transatlantic slave trade and the stories that are always connected to our food. I just wonder, I know that's not a very tightly made point, but I'm just curious about your perception as it relates to how we are viewed. It's not just marketing. There's a story there that we drag around that we're trying to break our way through and understand at the same time. And again, folks like you are articulating this in a new way so that old guys like me might be able to see it a little differently. As you were saying that, I was thinking one of the things that came to mind was a Zora Neale Hurston quote. She says, I feel most black when I'm thrown against a sharp white background. She's like, when I'm around black people, I'm myself, right? It's not about race. I think there's something about when you have a black audience, say your black family and you're preparing things for them and you're preparing things that feel familiar and plating them on your grandmother's china if you're lucky enough to have something like that. And maybe you throw in an experimental dish or something, but it's still all the black welcome table. And when you're trying to tell the black story outside of your black community and share it with a broader American or international audience, you say, okay, so which pieces of this were raced? and black and which parts were my family that I was trying out. So you start to ask yourself these questions. How do you represent 
Why are they based? Because they come from traditions of oppression, because they are ingredients that we brought from Africa, some intersection of those themes. I think that part of what's hard is that Blackness is a version of Americanness. <laughs> Italian food is from another country. <laughs> There's something of the exotic. You can elevate Chinese food. You can elevate Indian food. You can elevate French food. You elevate Peruvian food. You elevate, and then elevating Black food is complicated in the United States because it's elevating a race question instead of a global identity question. And the condition of Blackness in America, when we're talking about colored black, historical blackness. And it, there's important conversation to be had about the intersection between diasporic blackness and black food ways and black immigrant culture and how that elevates and forms and expands our sense of what black food is currently in America. But when we're talking about that plate of fried chicken and greens and cornbread and yams, we're talking about food that exists in America the way it does as part of the American narrative because of chattel slavery, right. period. Right. So the reason it exists and the reason that my Africanness did all came pre-1865, every drop of African blood in my body found its way to the United States through the Middle Passage. So my Black body and my Black sense of Black food comes from that truth figuring out how to celebrate that in front of white people is just fundamentally fraught because you're asking people when you're with your family, you're just asking for us to live in our truth together and then live past it into the light. But when you're preparing it for an audience that is mixed, the food is doing work. It, like asking people to accept it as elevated is asking them to dismantle some of their bias on both sides. I think that's complicated, especially because, you know, it's our food. It's our celebration food. You don't want to make a plate that outprices the folks that taught you to make it. There's that question right. too. There's so many questions about like, how do you get up and bring folks with you? If I'm serving a $32 plate of fried chicken and macaroni and cheese, because I've put truffle oil in it or done some really exciting four cheese something. And then the folks at home can't have any, what does that mean? I don't have an answer to that question either, but I will say that those are some of the things that I think about when I think about how we do this. I also think that there are white chefs that are cooking Southern food that is all black and making a lot of money doing very, having very fine restaurants. And there's some guys I won't whole put a finger on a name in Mississippi and Alabama and New Orleans, and even here, right here in Nashville, cooking really elevated Southern cuisine with white tablecloths all of which was originated as recipes that some black man or woman generated in this part of the country. I don't know what that means either. It all means something. And you have an interesting microphone now and camera to be able to start to uncover some of these stories. I learned about Thomas Bullock because of your mom's book. I've been in the restaurant business for 40 years, Caroline, and I had no idea about this man. The challenge that you just outlined with attracting white folks to our black experience, I've experienced on the front line for 40 years opening restaurants. Mm -hmm. We're running down on time and there's so much I wanted to cover with you, but I'm going to just move to a couple of more subjects with you, if you don't mind. We talked about politics earlier. I want to come back to that. You wrote this fantastic piece in 2017 op-ed for the New York Times. When Donald Trump, the president at the time, was just spinning our heads away that we thought we might have moved past. We were in a post-racial moment, we thought, when we had Barack in office. Anyway, you wrote this article, and basically you were 
very gently, very kindly, but very purposefully calling Barack to the front line and saying that we needed to hear his voice. The last thing that you said, I'm going to quote you from the last paragraph that you closed with. You said, quote, my generation graduated from college, got our first jobs, became adults all under the auspices of that truth. We learned to experience politics through the lens of your, and you're speaking to Barack, your eloquent presence in the White House. In this respect, you raised us. So we are unaccustomed to all of this wildness. Just because we're grown doesn't mean we don't need to hear from the man that brought us up, end quote. No question we were all feeling that in that moment. We needed some sanity. But let's play fantasy for a moment, if you don't mind. Given how polarized the country and politics are and all of that, if somehow the time limit was amended and Barack could run again, do you think he would win? And is he the leader that we need? Lord have mercy. What a question. I hope he'd win. I think he'd have a really good shot. I think that his life could also be in real danger. I wouldn't want him to run again for that reason. I think that our country is armed and perilously unabashed at the moment. I remember being afraid watching him walk out in the open air after accepting the Democratic nomination. I was like, I hope there's lasers in the sky for whoever's going to try and get him. I think that maybe that was premature, that paranoia, but I don't think it's premature now. I think in moments of great uprising, leaders get struck down. So that would be frightening for me. I hope he'd win again. I'd be afraid for him. I think we need a leader just like him. I don't know. I will say I believe in amendments to the Constitution. <laughs> and I also believe in, by the same token, settled law, staying settled law, Roe versus Wade. We decided that two was enough for a reason as a country. He served two terms. So we need somebody just like him. We need to be able to produce more presidents than just one sane one. We need a young, competent, charismatic, strategic down to earth, but really savvy leader right now in the Democratic Party. I think that ideologues get people killed on both sides, as history would tell us, and that compromise is where everyone's a little unhappy, but we're all safe. I feel like we're moving really far away from any chance at any kind of compromise. But I also am not really wanting to compromise with any of the people that are offering things from the other side right now. And that leads me to other conclusions that I probably shouldn't talk about when we've only got like minutes left. But I think something's brewing. And I don't know quite what that is, but it feels a little bit like 1860 to me. I said that a few years ago, just offhandedly, are we approaching civil war? I wish that I could say I feel less that way now than I did. Now I feel that's a scary possibility, but another podcast, another time, but certainly keep your voice heard. Can I interrupt you for one second yeah. and say everybody to that point, everybody who's listening to this Newsweek published yesterday. So I think Thursday, July 14th, they published an article about how on party lines, the house introduced a bill to launch an inquiry into neo-Nazi movements within the police force and the army in the United States, and every single House Republican voted against that inquiry. Read that article and be alarmed and call your representative wherever you live. I did that yesterday. My representative currently is a Democrat. He voted for the bill, for the inquiry. But all of that to say, please call. We're in danger. As an add-on to that, the New York Times this week, I don't know if you saw an, an article about the Gen Zers, I think, which you just a little bit beyond. You're the same age as my son, just a, a couple of years past that. But 
only 1% of them would vote for either Biden or Trump. They want somebody, as you had mentioned, closer to a much younger age, we'll say, than 70s and 80s. So I think maybe the old guys have had their shot. And I do often have these conversations with my son and worry about the algorithms reading of what he dives into news-wise. We just have to continue to make ourselves aware of what's going on. But anyway, I digress. So the last subject I wanted to cover with you, Caroline, is about writing. And uh, I've written a little bit, nowhere near the volume that you have, and only until recently for my own consumption. I find it's a mix of pain and pleasure. I, I like the idea. I like the ability, the cathartic release, the thought of that. It's all good getting it out. But the actual chore of doing it, I find it to just be grueling until I find that entry point in that moment of entry into a podcast guest. And then I get into a little bit of a role, but it's a little grueling. And I'm just curious how you feel. Is writing an enjoyable process for you? So Ernest Hemingway has this quote where he said, there is nothing to writing. All you do is sit down at a typewriter and bleed. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I find it excruciating personally. Every time I've written something good, I've never given birth, but it's the closest thing I can imagine. You just try something that you are sure deserves, that you want to live, that you have carried in you. And that must, the world must meet and that you must meet. But like, how am I going to have to rip my body apart? Who can I call to cut it out of me? Like literally I do. I feel like writing is hard. Writing is hard and it's lonely and I'm an extrovert. In this moment, especially, it's a bit frightening because some of the things I'm an essayist as well as a poet, fiction writer, but trying to write these essays and think in organized ways about how to tell the truth so that more people can see what you're seeing. If you ring the alarm, but you ring it in so loud or in such a chaotic way that people can't understand what you're ringing the alarm about, they won't understand what you're saying until it's too late. I saw that movie Don't Look Up this Christmas. I couldn't stop talking about it. I like, had to take to my bed because I was like, I need the Democrats to not be Jennifer Lawrence in that movie because her character, she got on television and she seemed so silly, but she was like, we're all going to die. There's an asteroid about to hit Earth. And it became this divisive, silly thing because she, her character was so shook that she couldn't impart her information in a way that could actually get lives saved. I feel that all the time. I want to scream and fuss. And I'm like, Caroline, put it into clean sentences so that it can do some work mm -hmm. and get some lives saved. It's frightening and it's hard. It's hard even when it's fun. But when it's hard and it also feels like life or death, that's scary. That asteroid to me was a metaphor for the mask. Yeah. And the environment. Right. Like the ice caps, yeah, everything. Caroline, do you have time for just two more quick questions? Oh, okay? yeah. I'm here. I'm drinking coffee and I'm supposed to write after oh, this good. today. So, so <laughs> please take <laughs> This is way more fun. Uh, we're almost there, but I did want to get these in if you don't mind. So Ambassador Shabazz, who is my cohort here at Corner Table Talk in her segment, uh, How We Move, she is working on a program. And I thought about you, especially during our conversation, but some of the stuff I had read about your time spent in Mississippi. She's working on a program to get inner city youth passports. It's a beautiful idea and just a great mission. The kids get so excited at the thought of traveling. Initially, it's a little intimidating, but then she sends them on their way and has them Google places they want to go and they come back excited and they want to go to Italy. They want to go to various places. 
Most of these kids, Caroline, have never been out of the state and some not even out of their neighborhood. So you talk about perspective. Now, you spent time in London. Obviously, you went there at Oxford. Obviously, you went there with a different background, a different life experience. But I'm curious what you would say was the biggest takeaway from that experience and what part of that maybe stayed with you? I'm trying to figure out what order to answer that in because my opportunities to travel internationally have been so important to me. And I think also the first things that were coming to mind as you were talking about the, this project, which I love, I think about all of the people who decamped to Europe from Josephine Baker to Richard Wright to James Baldwin. People, there is a long tradition of getting out of here because of the wildness of the impositions of white America and black America in this country to this day in its particular nuance set. So for me, getting to go to Europe, the traveling I got to do allowed me to experience my color and my body's story in a different context and a safer, for me in the spaces that I was going into, like a safer and more curious and welcoming context, which is not to say that these European countries don't have wild and deep problems with racism, nationalism, you name it. Me landing in London, my blackness had a different, people experienced it differently. And I didn't have to protect myself from certain of the nuances and gestures of whiteness that I didn't do when I'm in the United States. So I don't know. And it invites us and it also expands your thinking about what America could do and become and evolve into because Britain had slavery too. But then they also said, that's enough of that. And they got rid of it without a war. And that's reductive. But to sit in a country that pulled that off and then to sit from there and look back at us and go, what more could I be asking of this place that I live? Because this place, the people in power look like the people in power in my place, but the people in power here, their predecessors voted to do things that even the current people in power where I live won't. I don't know. Also to remember how young America is. I'm talking about traveling in Europe. And then I've also traveled a bit in Japan, both of which talk about getting to access and encounter ancient things. We think things are so set in stone here, but I studied at New College in Oxford, and New College is called New College because it was built new in the 1300s, <laughs> literally. We're so precious with our American identity and what pieces of it. It's like, in England, they're like, this is a new build, 1764. It's, we're funny, or we're not funny, we're particular and vain about what is ancient and what we've written down. And we're still like a teenager in terms of our wisdom our place in the world, in the political and historical and social movements of the West, if we could take ourselves a little bit less seriously and approach some of our traditions with a little bit more imagination, that would be really good. No question. Just before I let you go, I know that you went to St. Paul Academy, New Hampshire. I went to Kimball Union Academy in Meriden, okay. New Hampshire. I remember telling a young guy that I knew back in the day in New York that I was going to school in New Hampshire. And he asked me, where's New Hampshire upstate? But to perspective, you think about these young kids that Ambassador Shabazz is getting passports for that have never thought beyond the block or the route to school or whatever. I just think it's a beautiful program. So last thing I want to touch on, it's probably the heaviest question I'll give you today. You've been well known for a while and with your show Hungry for Answers, you are now becoming 
more recognizable. So that means there's going to be a lot of free food flowing your way. I know you don't go out to dinner a lot, but you're newly engaged and I think you're going to be doing some dining out. Are you prepared for all the free food and drink restaurateurs like me and chefs are going to start plying you with to bribe your goodwill? Oh my God. I love this question. I thought you were really going to hit me with a heavy one. It was like, you're getting more well-known if you bought a security dog. <laughs> Listen, I'll take all of the free food and drink a treadmill in my kitchen. I'll work it off. I'm trying to celebrate. I'm trying to say yes to my blessings. I think the more people share with you their acts of excellence and generosity, the more your community grows and the more you have opportunities to be lifted up and lift other people up. So I say I welcome all of it and I'm excited for a collaboration and I'm excited for us to move forward together. The ones of us that want to come together, I'm here for all of that. Yes, you are. The show is Hungry for Answers on the Discovery Channel. The host is our guest today, Caroline Randall-Williams. Caroline, thanks so much. I really appreciate your time and that you joined us today. Oh my gosh, this was such a, an inspiring, uplifting, and actually productive conversation. I'm like ready to go right today. I love it. <laughs> well, love great. It. it was for me too. Thanks again. Thank you so much for having me. Right. See you soon. So here we are with Ambassador Shabazz. We're rolling into how we move. Ambassador, what's going on? Oh, my God. My heart is still beating with joy and honor and love and pride and affirmation. In listening to this wonderful young lady, daughter of a colleague of mine, when you meet people and then a decade goes by and you see the manifestation of their young one, I did not put two and two together in 2020 when her amazing prose hit the airwaves in such a poignant way. My body is a Confederate monument. I think it was 2020 or 2019. Whenever it was so loud and clear, it was so resonating. It was so timely and it came from a young voice. And she painted the picture of truth, of clarity, because we know we think slavery is a long time ago. And she says, you're looking at the very conflict or the very outcome or the very union of both sides. So with the distinction of her African side being quite eloquent, it was still touched by the stain and the imposition of violation and her ability to articulate it and be the embodiment of the union. And none of it, none of the spoils are on this young lady. Just the awareness, just the cognizance, just the impetus of, of her knowing what that means. But what you get is the royalty of her inner pride. And thank God. Yeah, you're so right. And I think of you in that context, in terms of somebody who has the ability to take a really broad view, a 40,000 foot view, if you will, and articulate the condition back in a way that you just sit there and you shake your head and say, those are the right words. To hear that coming from someone from that generation, and we both have kids the same age, and I know we have high hopes for our children and they're doing, but it's reassuring because so often that the young generation gets knocked for, oh, they don't have a clue. They're not doing the but when you hear what her viewpoint is, it, it offers some hope that this story, as it's still evolving, this country, as it's still evolving, 
There's a story that's yet to be told that these young people have a different point of view on and an ability to articulate it in a way that's just completely unique. I think what's amazing with her, though, the difference I find with even brilliant young people who move forward, they're only looking at the lens in front of them. And sometimes the peripheral view is stunted. She happens to be amongst that peer group who has no problem in looking backwards and seeing and bringing that carriage of resource with her and in introducing to a new generation people of old, people of once upon a time. So I think that's the real difference. We have a lot of brilliant, bright young people who I'm inspired by, but the real gateway is when we are not left behind, that the wisdoms that we bring forth, right. that we get to invest, that our great greats can also be part of that journey, that their names can be stated out loud so that the new population doesn't think that they're starting from scratch. Yeah. So that's what's really wonderful in listening to her and the breadth in which she is exploring this new avenue in different ways for herself, new love, new pets, new ventures, alliances, an affirmed voice. That is just wonderful. Yeah. And I noticed too, during our conversation, a couple of times she was taking notes. I think that there's so much to be said for that saying, when your cup is not full, you're allowing other information to come in. When your cup is full, nothing else, there's no more room for anything else. And too many times, the closed mind of the, the idealism of youth, where you think of everything and you don't need to check with the elders. In her case, to her credit, I think that she's incorporating what she needs to from what needs to be learned from our history and incorporating that with how she sees where we are presently. So right. I, I love the way that she's synthesizing those realities. Yeah, it's the bridge. We need people that know how to translate for, on both yeah. sides. Yeah. So let's talk about something here. Yeah. I want to talk about this program of yours, yeah. this mission of yours that we brought up during the conversation with Caroline. Because Ambassador, I just have to tell you, it just warms my heart. I picture the faces of these young people that you're inspiring with the idea of travel, just the thought that you're planting, just the process of getting a passport, seeing their face on a document that allows them to travel. Talk about that, if you will, and what you're doing there. And I want to encourage anybody out there that's listening that wants to get involved, wants to contribute, wants to help this oh, cause, yeah. what better thing could you do than... Well, it's interesting because a couple of young people were not ready, were told that they couldn't go because they did not have that passport in time. And I have promised both their mothers, fathers, and them that they take the summer and take those two, three months and put their documents together because they will go next time. The world is a big place. And that we all have a role in it. It's accessible to all of us. The psychological notion that we can't leave the block has been put upon us, but it is not. So I've created a number of these over the decades. And more recently, in the last few years, where it's ethnomusicology, rhythms, beats, cultures, but it always has also human service in immersion as well, where we are one with the citizenry wherever we're going. So this trip is STEM and STEAM related, it's environmental sciences related, and it really is going to tap on how young people become the solutionists to any part of climate change and the impact on culture, citizenry, and commerce. So if 
agriculture is impacted, what does that do to the family who needs to eat or the industry in and around, such as tourism or export? And they will get to meet the Minister of Education and the head of OSA that deals with this sea world, the barrier reefs, marine life, and things like that. They will be amidst the Garifuna and the Maya. In addition to understanding cacao, they're also going to participate with the ladies who do the weaving and understanding the language. It's really interesting. This delegation comes from Malcolm X Shabazz STEM Academy in Newark. And one of the things I wanted people to realize is that Newark in and of itself, like New York, is a melting pot cross-section of a lot of first, second, third generation young people. And even they are rendered st stagnant. Parents have to be sensitive about visas and things like that. I just want to take all that fear off their backs and unearth that transformative like lifeline to what they can do and be and participate around the world. I know it happens for me every time I go and move and the wonderment always makes me want to get another ticket. And that's what I want to happen. I think I was telling you the other day, a few years back, we had talked to young people and asked them where in the world they could go. And they named the, the foods they knew, Italy, China, maybe. And then a week later, it was like, can I change my mind? It's like the idea of the world getting bigger and that they can touch it, be a part of it. Or you have young Black teens, day one, day two, day three, say, wow, People are so nice and welcoming. Day four, people are nice. And then you start to realize, wow, so where are you? Where are we that nice becomes the commodity? So we have to make sure that our young people don't think that they are just somehow another the plague, that they get to move around. And I do like to start in places where they will see themselves in duplicate, that the American narrative is still a work in progress and that we as seed descendants of plenty get to know that we can be navigators. Well, Ambassador Shabazz, the work that you do, again, I try to talk it up because you're always so quiet with it, and it certainly affects those that are close to you and involved, but uh, I don't think you get enough attention for the quiet work that you do. I thank you, and looking forward to hearing back from you when you return and you'll have stories and tales of good times and um, look oh, yeah. to that. Ambassador I'm excited. Bob. Thank you. That's how we be moving. Yeah. See you soon.